This is Daniel Jose Older, and you are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... When you're an adult and you're reading YA, sometimes you'll be like, oh my God, this kid's so stupid. Like, why are you making... Like, it's like book five Harry Potter, where you... (laughs) so mad at Harry because he's just so angry but like of course he's 15 you know that's that's what you're going through you're not going to adults because you're a 15 year old child and you don't have the life experience so for me it's a combination of coming of age and making sure that the audience is solidly teens not adults looking back on their own teenage years Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Sherry Sondheimer. Welcome back to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and therorbots.com. I am your host, Jamie Green. You can find me pretty much everywhere at The Roarbots. You can find the show at The GBB Podcast and Roarworthy on Twitter. And joining me this week is Sherry. You can find me on Twitter at SW Sondheimer and on Instagram at irate underscore Corvus. I got the spidey sense of tingling, Sherry. <gasps> I wonder why that is. Does somebody fart? <laughs> See, you can't just say that out of the blue for somebody who hasn't <laughs> read the book. They just think you're being gross. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what's really funny, though? What's that? Uh, Izzy is planning a trip for his 10th birthday Yes, to London with my parents. Oh, very nice. And we were out to brunch with my parents the other day. And my mom goes to me, why does my grandson know about the torture museum? (laughs) 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 And he knows it because of the book that was written by this week's guest. Yay. That's so exciting. I hope he goes to the torture museum. (laughs) (laughs) I tweeted her and told her this story. (laughs) That's amazing. That's amazing. Yes. This week we talked or will be talking, are talking. I'm not really sure what tense to use here, Uh, but we are talking to Preeti Chibber, who is the author of Peter and Ned's, what is it? It's Peter and Ned's Ultimate Travel Journal, Ultimate Travel Journal, um, which is all kinds of fun. Uh, in a nutshell, it's basically it's a tie-in to Spider-Man: Far From Home, and it's uh, in a nutshell, it's basically like a written in the style of a journal that was kept by Peter and Ned, and with some snarky comments from MJ, like written in the margins. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was complaining to you, I think, at one point that like I couldn't suspend my disbelief long enough to be like, nobody would keep a journal this way. Like, no three kids in high school are going to write this journal. But it didn't matter. It's just all kinds of fun. It's it's just delightful. Yeah. Um, and you know, has my kids looking for things when they're traveling now? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, my my daughter, um, I think, breezed through it in two sittings. And mm-hmm. she she uh, was a fan. She as she is wont to do. She gave it back to me and said, "Where's number two? <laughs> <laughs> she expects yeah. every book to be part of a series. I keep finding it um, in different rooms of the house because Zora keeps picking it up and it 
travels around the house with her. Nice. Uh, the other thing that's kind of cool about um, the Preeti and this book and the conversation we have is that this was really her first book book. You know, she's had a, a chapter mm-hmm. or two in an anthology, uh, but this is the, her first book and it's kind of um, a way to make a splash. You know, mm-hmm. you've got a Marvel book that's tied into one of their big summer blockbusters. Um, first movie, at, you know, after Endgame. And it's sort of like mm-hmm. not many quote unquote first time authors get this kind of an opportunity. Right. Which right. is cool. And, and because we both, you and I both write for sites, which she has a history with. She used to write for Book Riot. You write for yep. Book Riot. I write for Sci-Fi Wire. She does Sci-Fi Fangirls. Um, so it kind of gives hope to the rest of us. Of like, wow, maybe, right? maybe my Marvel day will come. Maybe my maybe someday I will get to do a Star War. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if if Peter Parker and Ned are your stepping stones to to writing the Star War, there's a lot worse places to be. I would not for complain. sure. I would not complain about that. I mean, she for got sure. advanced access to the screenplay and all kinds yep. of you know secret top secret conversations. And although she told us she saw a very early draft, and she actually doesn't know what happens at the end of the movie. Yeah, because I guess some changes were made, and yeah, there were rewrites yeah. in the interim. Um, so she's kind of excited to see it too, because she is going into it with only slightly more knowledge than the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) She told us, but it's a fun book. It's, it's, I mean, it's obviously it's written with kids in mind. It's, it's written Mm -hmm. for kids. It's like a middle grade. Um, I guess you put it right in the middle of middle grade. The thing Mm -hmm. I kind of compare it to are the origami Yoda books. Uh, because if you've ever read the origami Yoda books, they're kind of written, uh, as if they were a journal and they have little comments written by other kids in the margins and little, you know, um, mm-hmm. responses to what, you know, one character will write something and then another character will respond to that. And, uh, and so it's kind of like this group notebook journal approach. She, she took a similar approach uh, with Spider-Man. Or the Jedi, the Jedi Academy books. Yeah, similar. I mean, and, and so like um, – Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Like these are all books that are written and they're presented to look like the characters are actually writing it. Um, But Origami Yoda is the only other book that I can think of where characters actually like converse with one another on the page. And that's kind of how she did it here. The the Gravity Falls, she mentioned um, the Gravity Falls journals and there was another Disney one she mentioned as well that they kind of used as. Yeah templates um the star versus the forces of evil oh, right. journaly ones are kind of similar yeah so this um, is it's a format she said that disney has found to be successful sure sure and uh, they they know a thing or two about books and storytelling yeah, just a little <laughs> this was but it was a fun conversation um it was you know it's it's cool to talk to somebody toward the beginning of her career We've mm-hmm. talked to a lot of people who are, you know, mid-career or kind of legends with with lots of history and experience behind them. Uh, it's really it's an interesting conversation to have with somebody who's at the beginning of the, her career, sort of with all of this unknown in the future, but still super excited about where she is. And it's also interesting to talk to a writer who's worked on the other side of publishing. True. Which she did. Yeah. Uh, previously, she just left. 
in the last year, I think yeah. she said yeah. her few months back. job on yeah. the other side of publishing to write full time. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the experience that I have. I have the editing and the production and the, you know, working with authors to fine tune the message and make sure that the book gets out on time and is edited well and there are no typos and whatnot. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a, that's a part of the industry I know well, but it's, uh, it's, so it's always fun to get these different experiences and different perspectives. And she was just a ball of laughs. Like she's just so much fun to talk to just so much energy and, and so much just great humor too, which I, I had a lot of fun with this one. I, I also did. So we're going to stop talking because we know that you're not here for Shiri or me. Uh, this is a great conversation. Preeti Chibber with Peter and Ned's ultimate travel journal. Uh, tying into Spider-Man Far From Home. Do pick it up. It's already out now. It makes a great gift for any of those, I would say, third to eighth, probably. Like anywhere in there, probably, it, it would kids would like it. It's it's just delightful. I enjoyed it. Yeah. I read it. I ended up finishing it on my own before the interview because um, we were reading it to the kids at bedtime and we were a little behind. And uh, I enjoyed it on my own. Yeah. As did I. I'm not going to lie. It's, it's good fun for all ages. But thank you guys for coming back week after week. Thanks for hitting subscribe. Thanks for talking about us. Thanks for talking to us. We really do appreciate it. We've got some more great conversations coming your way in future weeks. So if you don't want to miss anything, hit subscribe. You can also go back and we've got over about 240 episodes and interviews. You can comb through the back catalog, see who else you would like to listen to. You won't be disappointed. Uh, and I am Jamie, your host. You can find me at The Roarbots. You can find the show at The Roarbots and The GBB Podcast. And you can find Shiri at SW Sonheimer on Twitter and irate underscore Corvus on Instagram. Thanks so much, guys. Talk to you next week. Take care. Bye. I'm going to start off by hitting you with a hardball. So prepare, <laughs> prepare yourself. Um, I am admittedly not the world's biggest Spider-Man fan. I will admit that. I know. I know. Right? <laughs> so maybe, just maybe, this has already been addressed in the character's history over the last few decades. But your book got me thinking. Um, <laughs> does his spidey sense go off every time someone around him farts or is about to fart? <laughs> I mean, it, it depends on the life-threatening nature of the fart, I think. <laughs> Like, is he in an enclosed space? Will it take up all the oxygen? Right. Like, if they're in an elevator, it would probably go off, right? He would get a little a little tingle. Okay. I don't know if it would happen right before the person did it. <laughs> yeah. Is it, is, it, is it, like, preparing him for the sound or for the smell? Like, I don't know when this... What does the side It's got to be the sound. It's, it's yeah. the gas that is expelled. Okay. That will impact his person. I told you, we're starting off with the tough questions. These are the Although, questions that people want to know. <laughs> we all know that, you know, Peter's spider sense is, eh, he got pooped on by a bird. You know. <laughs> so who knows? It's, it, it depends on how life-threatening it is, I think. Right. But he, <laughs> his spidey sense might need a tune-up, is, is what, what we're saying, right? Because, okay, anyway. <laughs> Um, go ahead, Shiri. Sorry. There's a there's a pretty solid adult kid humor balance in Peter and Ned's Ultimate Travel Journal. Um, although, as you can tell, Jamie and I 
both enjoy a good fart joke um, <laughs> as much as my six-year-old, if not more. Um, but there are those who might pretend otherwise. Um, how did you go about striking that balance? Uh, I mean, honestly, like, I've worked in children's lit for t- 12 years or something like that. So I love a good kids joke. Like, I love dad jokes. I don't know if either of you know um, the Percy Jackson series very oh, yeah. well at all. Oh, yes. Yeah. So Rick Riordan is a huge, huge fan of the dad joke, and that's kind of the level of humor I was going for. <laughs> I was like, if this is going to make me laugh like I'm, you know, 10 years old, like, that's what I want. Did Did you have, like, um, a kid focus group that you would, you know, run the jokes by <laughs> or run, run things by before you put it in the book? I didn't. I should have, though. <laughs> Well, it's playing really well in my house. My son is nine, um, and he is taking, he decided for his elective next year, he's going to take a comedy class, yes. and he thinks all of these jokes are like chef kiss, so <laughs> I think you I think you got it. <laughs> That's amazing. I yeah. basically was like, everyone tell me every time your child laughs at this book, like, that's all I want to know. <laughs> Yeah, I, kids across the country are going to be keeping their own little no- notebook of Ned jokes, you know. I like. hope so. <laughs> so, how did the book come about? I mean, did Mar- Marvel reach out to you specifically for it? Did you pitch the idea? Like, where did it come from? So, um, actually, it was, they came to me, Disney Disney came to me. So, this is through Marvel Press, right. which is a division of Disney's, like, their publishing group, basically, since. Um, you know, everything is all together now. Mm-hmm. And they emailed me about a Marvel press opportunity. Now, I also freelance, so I thought it was like a media like interview thing. <laughs> like, you're going to get to interview a writer. And I was like, oh, great, sure, whatever. Then I read the email and I was like, oh my God, they want me to write a Spider-Man book. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> this didn't go out. This wasn't an email blast to all the media. This was right. specifically written to me. <laughs> It was, I was at work at the time and I like immediately G-chatted my friend Sopna and I was like, oh my God, who, what, what do I do? And she was like, right back. <laughs> yeah, that's not an email you sit on and be like, well, I, nope. <laughs> I'm going to wait till tomorrow. I don't want them to think that I'm too anxious. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I got to play it cool. No, I am like the least cool person you have ever met. I have no chill ever. So I wrote back and I was like, this sounds amazing. And I had to send them some writing samples, which luckily sci-fi has been good enough to let me write like garbage Peter Parker Parker articles, (laughs) like any (laughs) weird thing. And I'm like, can I write about, you know, how here are all the things that are the same size as Tom Holland. Yeah. And they're like, sure, why not? (laughs) So (laughs) I had like a catalog of like kind of silly, funny things I could send them and they were happy with it. And it all happened in the span, it was like the weekend of Comic Con, of New York Comic Con. So I was like on the floor of the Javits Center, calling Disney to be like, "These are my ideas. This is what we should do." And then it just like really fast. Wow. <sighs> so yeah. How much direction did you get from them? I mean, did they did they did they say the book needs to be set during the film time and, and step back from that and say you now go do your own thing, or did they sort of give you some some guidance into what it needed to be? So they knew it was going to be a journal that they knew um, and that they told me and that it would be tied in directly to the events of the film. So that's kind of all I had from them of like, um, 
you know, we're going to set up a time for you to read the script. It was a version of the script. It wasn't like the final, I do not know what's going to happen in this movie at the end of the day. Um, and if you read the book, it's not like a ton of spoilers or anything. Um, but I went into Marvel. I read a version of the script that was, you know, super secrecy, like sitting yeah. in a room by myself, not allowed to take anything in with me. And then it was just based on what I read in that in that three hours at Marvel. Yeah. Like, was, that was all the guidance I got. Could, could you take anything out of that room? Like, were you allowed to take notes? <laughs> so they gave me a few pieces of paper, and I wrote down all my notes, and then they took them back <laughs> <laughs> and scanned them and sent them to me over, like, a secure server. Oh, well, that's, oh still, that's still more than some people get. We've talked to a lot of people, a number of people who had, you know, sort of advanced access to some of the Star Wars scripts. Star Wars. And yeah. they said, like, this, like, it was... It was like walking into the NSA. Like they yeah. they couldn't take anything in. They couldn't take anything out. Like they would have scanned their brains for memories if they had the technology. You know. Yeah. <laughs> um. So they knew it was a journal. Did the the back and forth nature of of the journal come from you and and, and the format of what the pages were going to look like that that it was a handwritten journal? Like how much of that was you? So uh, they've done a few of these journal types in the past, and they sent me some examples. Like um, they have a Gravity Falls version, and uh, they did one with the Descendants movies. Mm -hmm. And those are all very much in that way of like a combination of like handwritten notes and like paraphernalia of like receipts and, and tickets and things like that. So I had kind of a format going in. Um in terms of the art, like, I made suggestions. I basically wrote it, and then I would make art notes of, like, this is what I think the art could be on this page. Um, but, yeah, the, the handwriting stuff is all very much in line with their general journal format. Got it. Got it. So, obviously, the personalities, Peter's, Ned's, MJ's, are based on the MCU. But are there any particular arcs of the comic that also influenced you? your characters oh my gosh this is so hard <laughs> so i have so many i love peter parker in general so i read the comics play the game watch the movies the cartoons and they're all different like mm -hmm. every an mcu peter is wildly different than comics peter mm -hmm. you know um originally i in my head all those bad jokes were peter's bad jokes because peter makes bad jokes but in the mcu peter doesn't make bad jokes Ned makes bad jokes. Mm -hmm. So it's like little things like that that I had to strip back and take a step back and really remember who I was writing. Um, but, you know, that said, the, like, six-armed Spider-Man was very much, I, like, pulled the, like, image from the comic and be like, draw this. <laughs> this is what I want. <laughs> so, like, I tried to do, like, little, little things that would, like, shout out to the comics and to the other versions of Peter, but this very much was... MCU Peter Parker and MJ and Ned. Any chance that we're going to get just an MJ uh, guidebook of Europe? Because that's 100% my kind of trip. <laughs> um, I would do, totally be down. Nothing in the works, though, but I would totally do it. I was just in Scotland and I'm like, okay, so we got to have to go to Glasgow Cathedral because there's this giant necropolis. And my friend was like, no. <laughs> she's like, we're not doing that. I was like, but, but. She's like, no, we're not going up on a giant hill full of dead bodies. Oh my God. 
I'm more of the Peter. I'd be like, if you really want to, yeah, <laughs> I guess I'll come because I like you. I was like, but it used to be a Druid Grove, and Merlin stood up there and yelled at people. She was like, we're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you talked about um, how you mentioned specific ideas that you had for the art. What was the relationship uh, between you and the illustrators like? Did you did you have uh, a back and forth with them, or did you just sort of submit manuscript and they said, "Here, how about this? Here's some art." Uh, the latter. Oh, really? <laughs> I, I basically like I worked with my um, editor Emily pretty like pretty strongly, and she was the go between because mm-hmm. they're Disney artists. Um, both Stefan and George work at Disney, so they're in house artists. Okay. So I guess that they probably done a lot of work there, and they they know their style. Um, but they did send me samples, and I was like, this is the cutest Spider-Man I've ever seen in my life. So <laughs> I'm happy with whatever you do for my Keep art Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I know you had also mentioned this, that you are um, – you work full-time in, in, in the publishing industry, uh, but your experience primarily has been from the publisher side uh, and – I also work in publishing and I also work on the publisher side. So I have a certain perspective on what it's like to work with authors. Uh, Now that you're an author yourself and have seen what it's like from both sides, has that affected your day-to-day and how you interact with authors? So I actually left my publishing job um, back in December to write full-time. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Congratulations. Uh, Yeah. Thank you. (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. Uh, And it... It's been interesting, though, from the author's side, because I know so much about the publishing side, where I give myself a lot more anxiety, because I can imagine the meetings that are happening, even if those are not the things that are happening, you know? So I was like, oh my gosh, I can, like, picture a meeting where they're going through my manuscript, and they're like, this is the worst (laughs) thing I've ever read. And, like, they would never say that, and I would have never said that, but it's that, like, heightened kind of... uh, all the way on the like exaggerated version of what publishing is like knowing too much, but not knowing enough is the worst. Yeah. But I have to imagine having that knowledge of the journey a book travels through on its way to publication probably took some of the anxiety that many other new authors might feel because many other authors who don't know the process are probably filled with anxiety and freaking out and be like, how come I haven't heard back? What's going on? Why are they making changes? What are these notes about? And they don't, they don't quite realize what happens to a manuscript on its way to becoming a book, but you do. So, I mean, do you think that that took any of the potential anxiety off of you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are things that I was like, oh, I, I don't have to stress about this. And, and I'm super privileged because, you know, publishing background means I know people who I can turn to for help and advice and like, other people in the same house sometimes where I'm like, hey, is this weird from Disney? Because I worked I worked at Scholastic, which is a different house. You know, every house has their right. kind of um, idiosyncrasies. And so some of the things they'd be like, no, that's just like a Disney thing. You're fine. Not a big deal. So definitely helped in that way of knowing when I sent my manuscript off, it was totally normal if I didn't get notes back immediately because that's not how things work. And publishing is the slowest thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, yeah, I would say that helped a lot on, on that side. You also are somewhat steeped in YA. Were there any challenges for you to work with middle grade? Like, did you, did you find it difficult to, 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 
to target a different audience for what you might not be as familiar with as a reader and as somebody who worked in publishing? Yeah, actually, it's funny because I'm not a middle grade reader, really. I mean, I'll read books that um, are award winners and and incredibly well reviewed so that I know the trends of the age level, but I'm not a huge middle grade reader. So I was a little like thrown by the notion of writing a middle grade book, but then turns out my my humor is the exact right (laughs) age level for this kind of book. So that worked out, you know, it's, it's, and even like YA... There's a space for the YA that I kind of try to champion is on the younger side because it's kind of an overlooked market, that 12 to 14-year-old range. It tends to go from middle grade, which is like 8 to 12, then to 14 plus. Mm-hmm. And so there's like this kind of older middle grade, like younger YA age that I really like as a reader. And those are the kids that I try to target. And so the Peter and Ned's book is kind of, well, it's, can be read by eight to 12 year olds it some of the jokes and some of the humor skews just a little bit older mm-hmm. was this your first full-length book yeah. i know you had a story in um a thousand beginnings and endings which was an amazing collection oh thank you um but this was your first full-length book right yes first one what are you working on now can you tell us um, I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> Correct um, answer. Good answer. <laughs> I, I can tell you that it is a super fun project that is like hopefully going to be announced in the next like month, month and a half ish. Um, so by uh, San Diego, yeah. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Now we have to speculate wildly if it's Marvel or Star Wars. <laughs> we'll see. We will see. Um, okay, I have to ask you this because we have had a ton of authors on, a ton of people who write YA, um, and I've asked this question and I get just as many answers as people have asked. Um, but for you, what makes something YA as opposed to quote-unquote adult fiction? Uh, I think YA is the the focus on coming of age. I think it's that place where you're realizing that you or that you're you're engaging with the act of growing up, basically. Um, for me, and and YA, the audience is teens. Mm-hmm. So you're coming at, when you're an adult and you're reading YA. Sometimes you'll be like, "Oh my god, this kid's so stupid!" <laughs> like. Why are you making like it's like book five Harry Potter where you're so <laughs> mad at Harry because he's just so angry. But like, of course, he's 15. You know, that's that's what you're going through. You're not going to adults because you're a 15 year old child and you don't have the life experience. So for me, it's a combination of coming of age and making sure that the audience is solidly teens, not adults looking back on their own teenage years. That being said, though, YA is <laughs> phenomenally popular with adults. It is. So where does that come from? Like, why do you think so many adults have glommed on to YA as their, I don't know if you want to call it a genre, but as their type of book of choice? Like, why do they gravitate toward YA versus, um, um, you know, other types of fiction that might have been written for an adult in mind? 
Uh, I think adult, or I mean, um, YA tends to be more plot driven. Um, it tends to be easier and faster to read. And also, who doesn't love coming of age stories? Even if it's not written in a nostalgic way, which actually I think benefits for the audience because it puts you back in that feeling and it puts you back in that moment of, you know, remembering and and kind of reliving that notion of prom or homecoming or like whatever these like rites of passages are. Um, and I think it's it's a lot of escapism because adult fiction, I mean, if you're talking like literary fiction, it's not super fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> on the whole, I probably would agree. Whole, with you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then with genre, you know, adult genre, that's a whole other beast of like, if you're into genre, like you tend to be like, you know, I'm not a big like adult hard sci-fi reader because it's not for me, but I like adult fantasy a lot. Um, but that again is usually an investment. It's usually a lot of time. And so I don't know. I think that that time and emotion and kind of the ease of reading has a lot to do with it yeah it's interesting that you say that because now that i'm thinking about it when i do read you know quote unquote literary fiction these days i tend to listen to it (laughs) rather than sit and read it because you can do other things because i can do other things i have to say from my perspective or from our perspective from shiri and i i'm not don't mean to speak for you but we've talked to a lot of authors and the authors who write primarily YA are a lot more fun to talk to. <laughs> they seem like the kind of people I'd actually want to hang out with. I don't think we take ourselves particularly seriously. And, it's, and it is very much about the reader for, for YA in a way that it might not necessarily be on the adult side, which is very much about the writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think you can look at the difference in what is happening in terms of representation on the children's side versus on the adult side and mm-hmm. how much stronger and faster we've moved along, to be honest. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, I never considered myself a romance reader either, but I mean, on my way to Scotland, I read Maureen Goo's new book and... Yay. Sarah Coon's new book in a row. Oh, that's awesome. So, yeah. <laughs> they're both so, so great. <laughs> they're fantastic. And, you know, the uh, main characters are Korean and Japanese in turn. So I think that's definitely true. Yeah, and they're fun. Like, I think there's they're still so fun. that on the adult side, it's harder to get your story out. And, and not actually not necessarily even speaking of romance, because I know a lot of authors of color on on the adult romance side that are doing the work and and Uh forward but i don't know there's something just like enjoyable about getting to write something that's fun and for a reader and is bigger than yourself so let me ask about that for a second so ya as you just said and i think is pretty well established is sort of the um do we want to say avant-garde? I mean, it's it's where this representation and uh, and change is happening more so than quote unquote literary adult fiction. Like we're seeing more characters of color, more authors of color, more different types of people that that run the spectrum of humanity, um, and you're seeing that represented in YA books more so than any other type of book. Why is, is that? 
is that a function of the authors who choose to write those books or is it a function of publishers thinking that it's a safer <laughs> it's a safer place to to put those stories uh, I actually think it's 100% a function of authors who started the organization We Need Diverse Books in 2014. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like they there there were slowly conversations happening but like I said earlier publishing moves at like a snail space not just in terms of the publishing process but in terms of the industry change. Um it's an industry that has been doing business the same way for like hundreds of years. And so it's also like if you look at the statistics of what the industry looks like in terms of employment is very homogenous. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I I started working in publishing in 2007, I think. And up through the 2010s, I can remember people saying in meetings in front of a group of, you know, a room full of people like, oh, we can't put a black person on the cover. It mm-hmm. won't sell. And you're like, that is really messed up that you would feel comfortable saying that out loud. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so in 2014, um, Ellen O and several other authors of color created this hashtag. We need diverse books. And then it spun into a nonprofit and it really impacted industry conversation and what industry employees were starting to realize what was appropriate and what was inappropriate. (laughs) And it like, I can't, like, if you look at the New York Times bestseller list for YA today and looked at it from 10 years ago, it is miles how different it is. It is so wild um, and how many more people of color exist. And, you know, I'm coming from it from a racial perspective because I am a person of color. But in every respect, I feel like it's not perfect and it's not always done right or well. And there are still hiccups because it's it's a growing pains, you know, but we're having the conversation in a way that adult publishing, I think, is lacking or, or lagging. And it's obviously only a matter of time before the readers who expect this of their literature turn into adults themselves yep. and expect exactly. expect to see it in their the books that they grow into. You know, and mm-hmm. I think I think yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right that you know the the new status quo, the new normal that we're developing in YA is only going to grow with the readers who are who are experiencing it and, and thinking that that is normal. I mean, you know? if you look at Spider-Man Homecoming, it was, unfortunately, revolutionary that the cast looked like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, they did... Do you remember that, um, that poster they did before the movie came out at, like, Comic-Con or something, where it was, like, the Breakfast Club poster? Yeah. And it was like Tom Holland and um, I can't remember everybody's name, but all the all the characters kind of sitting there, and you're like, "Sorry, my phone's ringing." Um, they're all sitting there, and it was like black and brown actors front yeah. and center. In addition to, of course, Tom Holland, you know, um, and the high school in that movie like looked like a high school in Queens, mm-hmm. you know, right. like that was amazing. And kids are, are realizing that like, that's what they should be able to see is a reflection of the children and the people who exist in the world. Yeah. Well, then we had into the spider verse, which, yes. you know, I mean, my daughter, when she saw, <laughs> when she saw the first, the teaser for far from home, she was excited but then she looked at me and she goes, excuse me, where is Gwen? Like, the women, <laughs> the women are missing. Like, that's not cool. 
So yeah, I think I think kids are getting are growing up with a different perspective. Yeah. I re- I, re- I remember Great. feeling that way when I we saw that first um, the first cast photo uh, from Rogue One, Star Wars Rogue One. Yes. And you look and like I don't think there was a single you know white dude in that in that cast in that picture that that initial yeah, picture I where mean, we no women of color either, but <laughs> no women of color either. But it was I mean it, there was still a woman leading the film. It was a move forward, hundred yeah. percent, and you know. Rogue One was incredible. Like seeing Riz Ahmed on screen in a Star Wars movie as another South Asian person was one of the most like incredible experiences ever. Um, And even in Far From Home, like what we get to see from MJ, which I I love Zendaya (laughs) so much, and I love her in the role, and I love the take they've given to you know um, MJ, who isn't technically Mary Jane, but. Whatever. Whatever she is. <laughs> I realized how funny she was. She's so funny. I mean, so even funny. in Homecoming when she's like, I'm not obsessed. I'm just observant. I was like, I love you. <laughs> yeah, my daughter, I think, is becoming a huge Zendaya fan. She doesn't really know her from anything outside of the movies. Um, <laughs> but she, she knows her most, I think, from The Greatest Showman. Cute. And she uh, she just adores her, adored her in that, and so when she saw Homecoming, she's like, "Wait, that's the girl from 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 The Greatest Showman." I was like, "Yeah, I think most kids see it the other way around, but whatever." <laughs> um, I my know- daughter likes that she likes creepy stuff. Yep. <laughs> Zora's creepy. That's what she tells me all the time. Zora's creepy. And I'm creepy, mommy. <laughs> cool. That's all right. My daughter has embraced weird. She's like, I'm weird and I'm happy. I'm proud. She's like, other kids, call, other kids call me weird and I'm happy. You know, I say, yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know, Sherry, did you want to ask? I know you wanted to talk about um, in the book the, 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 the portrayal of Peter. Oh, I noticed that there's a, a very small and subtle allusion to the fact that he has some hesitation about getting on the plane um, that's related to having gotten on the spaceship. Um, it's super you, subtle. Yeah, I'm like, you have to remind me. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, at I the know very... I wrote it, but it's been a minute since oh, I wrote no, it. Oh, no, I totally get it. <laughs> um, it's at the very beginning, and it's when they're deciding where they're going to sit. And he just has this second's hesitation about getting on the plane um, because... It's obviously some some emotional fallout from having gotten on the spaceship in Infinity War and the memories that are connected to that, obviously. Um, do you think that kind of stuff is something we need to talk about more with superheroes, even with kids? Uh, I think that something that's super powerful about Peter Parker as a character specifically is that we get to see him pretty frequently deal with anxiety and emotional fallout from his life mm-hmm. in a really accessible way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, something that I am looking forward to seeing in Far From Home is Peter dealing with grief and the fallout from Endgame because I think that that's like global trauma. That mm-hmm. happened, right? Like that's 
trauma that everybody dealt with and everyone is going to have to continue to deal with. So we're going to get an avenue through one of the most empathetic characters in the MCU. Um, And we saw it in Homecoming when he is, we get to see him like be scared, right? Like in the scene of the, the warehouse falling on him, which is, you know, kind of loosely based on the Roma to cover of him kind of being like, screaming for help and it's this moment of like I you can identify with that Mm -hmm. um and so I think that we'll see some of that in Far From Home I think it's important for us to see superheroes be that way because they're so often portrayed as if you show any type of emotional weakness you're not good enough and the MCU has kind of provided us with an opportunity to see superheroes fail and deal with that failure yeah do we also need to talk about more how wedgie prone the suits would be (laughs) i mean he tells you the con for the suit is only wedgie (laughs) like that's his con (laughs) (laughs) my kids my son was like it would give you a wedgie I know that you've read a version of the script from of, of Far From Home. I'm not asking you to give anything away. Uh, but does the film... But he is. But I am <laughs> anyway, Does the film in some way, or another way, if you don't want to talk about the film specifically, do you think it should be addressed how the five-year gap affects teenagers who are in high school in a vastly different way than it would other people? Um, I am trying to find a way to answer this question that won't get me in trouble. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that something that is going back to our conversation about YA that is unique to YA is thinking about the mental state of teenagers Mm -hmm. and how when you're a teenager, you just feel things so deeply Mm -hmm. and everything is so important. And when you are writing a teen character, I think it's always important to remember that. That you, as a teen, like you don't have the kind of life experience to contextualize things when they happen. And so... Of course, everything that happens to you is going to feel like a million times more so than maybe an adult counterpart. Right. Right. That's what I'm going to say. That's what you're going to say. And what I'm reading into that is that, of course, absolutely, we have to address that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, I can wait. It's only a couple more weeks. I can wait. It's just a couple more weeks. We got like three weeks. Do you Do you know... Um, I, I'm assuming you read an earlier version of the script. Like, do you know how closely the final movie that you're going to see is going to resemble what you read? I think that when I saw the trailer, I was like, okay, so that's stated. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> so something. You know, some, some things stayed in. Uh, there's something, but there were things that, you know, it was it was a very very early version of the script. Like there, are, I hundred percent do not know the ending. I didn't know the ending of Endgame. Mm. Like I didn't know any of those things um, coming out of my script read. I had no idea. So there, I think it's going to be 
different and I think it's going to surprise me even though I had a basic understanding of like the narrative arc yeah if we're I'm sorry go ahead Oh, go ahead. If we're looking at the MCU... We're all very polite today. I know. Yeah, yeah it's, I know. It's kind of like crazy. It. It's not usually this polite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if we're looking at the MCU, and the only reason I keep harping on this is obviously because you wrote the book that's tied into it, but it's also, I mean, we've never seen a franchise last this long and maintain the same standards almost from the beginning, if not get better. Um, as time went on, you know, we're 22 films and counting or 23, I guess, is going to be far from home. Um, but I'm assuming you've seen most, if not all the films. But mm-hmm. what for you has been the most like rev- you should watch their you should have watched their live tweets of their rewatch. <laughs> <laughs> I think awesome. I saw some of that. <laughs> but what for you has been like the most revelatory aspect? Like what could you have not even imagined before seeing it on the screen, but is now just so integral to the Marvel Universe for you? Uh, you know, it's funny. Like, I am I'm obsessed with the notion of mass storytelling um, that, that Marvel has been doing through its comics for decades. Mm-hmm. You know, this, there, there's a book called Marvel, The Untold Story by Sean Howe or Ho, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And it's basically the history of Marvel Comics. And he talks about how, you know, back in the day, there used to be this room of like file cabinets or postcards or you would go or um, index cards and you would go in. And if you wanted to use Spider-Man in New York, you'd have to go in and it would be like, oh, right now, Spider-Man's in, you know, space with the Mm -hmm. Fantastic Four. So, no, you can't use him this week in New York Mm because it doesn't make sense. So this idea that you have this like massive 23, you know, film journey where there are, you know, so many characters and so many storylines all intertwining is incredible to me. Like, I cannot fathom it. It it gives me a little bit of anxiety from a storytelling perspective. <laughs> like, how do, you, how do you even, like, put your arms around that as a thing? Like, how do you set Captain Marvel in the 90s in between? Yeah. <laughs> two films that are connected narratively yeah. and have it be impactful without feeling like it's retconning and it's just it's just amazing so so from just a storytelling perspective it's super impressive and then in terms of like getting to see things on screen like i was i waited for a marvel peter parker to be on screen <laughs> I don't even know how long because I love I love the Raimi Spider-Man. I saw that movie when it came out when I was like, I think a sophomore in high school, and I was th- it was awesome, right? That said, I don't know that anyone's ever gotten Peter Parker done right. Right. Like I feel like that's a really hard balance to strike, and like you know we said MCU Peter is different, but he's not different in the way that like what you know you can expect from Peter Parker, which is a character, a fallible character, but one that's full of joy. Yeah. Despite his grief and despite the struggles he's gone through, he's still fundamentally a positive person and a youthful person and a person with a lot of potential. And I think that's what Marvel's done in such a really great way with Homecoming and hopefully now Far From Home. 
by contrast, I mean, so we've got this 23 film epic story that ties together seamlessly, even though in, in ways that we shouldn't work, but absolutely do. Is there some place along that journey where you think they just really dropped the ball and missed a huge opportunity? Oh, missed opportunity wise? Yeah. I mean, I'm not talking like that was just a bad movie. That was a poor movie or it was poor cinematography. I'm just saying they had a great opportunity to do something really special and they just chose to go a different direction. Um, I think that it was hard as a female Marvel fan to wait until 2019 to get a female-fronted film. Mm-hmm. Um, that I Like, my biggest regret for the MCU is not getting our Black Widow film in 2013. Yeah. Like, uh, imagine that story just after the Avengers, just after we get to hear her say that line, like, I got read in my ledger. There's a whole movie in that one line of dialogue that we never got. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that's my biggest regret. And right after she was the only one of that entire crew that could outsmart Loki. Yeah, like it's a it's such a great moment and it's unfortunate that it's one that we can't go back to. That said, if we get I I don't I don't know what the Black Widow movie like schedule is or or what's going on with it, but I it could still be a really cool film, a really cool origin story film. It just won't have the same level of impact that it could have had six years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm still bitter. Um, I guess is, has the spoiler ban lifted officially? <laughs> Can we talk about it? So in, I mean, in, in it's, game, it's been over a month. It's been a while. Um, I'm still bitter. I mean, it should have been Hawkeye and I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> like, it should have been Hawkeye. And I hate, I hate that. Just after they they did so much good with Captain Marvel, um, they they just they did so much wrong with Gamora and Black Widow. Well, I think it's bullshit that Tony got a funeral and and, she, and she got, got a, she got a bench thrown over the, the lake. Angry men, <laughs> angry men throwing things in the water like yeah. that. Was I will say, I think Hawkeye. Unfortunately, like Hawkeye is another character where they had the misfortune of predating. Matt Fraction's Matt Hawkeye, Fraction's which Hawkeye. kind of created the best version of that character, like the most interesting and the most fleshed out. And they they tried. They tried to get closer to that character as the movies went on, but I feel like they just never were able to balance the character they created with the character that people wanted him to be. And just imagine if they had actually made him deaf. Mm. <laughs> uh, I... <laughs> I just feel like they they just didn't have... I mean, you have to remember, like, back in 2008, when Iron Man came out, that there was... I don't think they knew what it was going to be. Yeah. Like, we talk about this grand storytelling, and we talk about, like, how they've managed to tell a story over 23 films in this kind of really fluid way where it feels like everything was intentional, but... Back at the beginning, I feel like they were like, well, we hope this works. Yeah. (laughs) You know? And so I don't know what the studio was like. And this was pre-Disney buying Marvel, too. So Disney has had, I think, a huge influence in terms of organization. Like, no one has an organizational kind of 
storytelling mindset like Disney does. Yeah. So this is prior to all of that where, again, I'm going to bring it back to this Marvel, his untold story Marvel book, because it is bananas how, like, fly by the seat of your pants that company was. Yeah. It was like they had a different editorial head every five years. It was always some 19-year-old kid from, like, <laughs> God knows where who wrote letters to the editor. Like it was, I, I was reading that book and I was like, how has this company stayed in business for so long? Like, well, and they almost did it, which right? is why they almost did it, which is why, you know, Fox has the X-Men and Sony had Spider-Man. I mean, they sold, and... they sold all their like capital characters and then had to bank on the fact that people would care about characters they had never heard of. Like Guardians of the Galaxy. Right. Who knew who they were outside of like huge Marvel comics nerds, which are not the majority of audiences. Like, right. That's incredible. So like some of this, like, and, and another thing is that the representation conversation has accelerated at a rate that I think the creative side of the in industry just like can't keep up with. Because like when you talk about publishing and you talk about making movies and all these things, all these industries are so resistant to change that they need massive paradigm shifts and massive um, employee shifts, which is hard to do when you don't have access to that employment opportunity, right? Like it's, it's so many different things that contribute to the lack of representation in media. But one of the things we don't talk about is the lack of opportunity for marginalized people to exist in the space where the creating is happening. And so, like, Disney reaching out to me, a South Asian woman, getting to write Spider-Man, it's who, who would have thought in a million years that that would have happened? Like, that never happens. Yeah, I feel like, you know, um, a lot of, a lot of uh, for lack of a better word, crap has been thrown at Disney. And I, I don't. I don't agree with much of the um, naysaying that you will read about you read online, but I think that they have at least the publishing division for Star Wars, for Marvel, for for the yeah. other IPs that they own. They have been making some very bold decisions. And yeah. well, they own they own they own Rick Riordan presents, don't they? Yeah, isn't that, that's, is, that's isn't that Hyperion? Hyperion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I mean, between the huge IPs that they own and the other A list authors that they have and properties that they are publishing. I think they're making some really strong, awesome, amazing choices that have almost universally paid off in a huge way. Yeah. And so hopefully what this means is that, you know, we can look back at the last decade and see where they fell short, which they did. Mm -hmm. Like, we know those films. We, we like Black Panther tells you. The story of Black Panther, where you're like, that movie that came out in 2018 made over a billion dollars worldwide. Mm -hmm. Like, that is proof of concept that you should be investing in these stories and in these narratives. But there were things happening a decade ago that's not just, you know, nothing's created in a bubble. And so moving forward, I think there has been more of a commitment to partnering with and finding marginalized creators yeah. to both like tell their own stories and tell other stories. And I am 100% on board for that ride. 
I think. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have a personal vested interest in it, so. Yeah. <laughs> This has been the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. Take care.